We here at the Golden Silent Films podcast love our history, but with a podcast, there's really only so much you can do to give that historical experience to someone else. But if you want to physically experience that history, you want to be immersed in it, that we can think of no better place than the John Hayes Center, located in picturesque Salem, Indiana, and named for the prolific statesman who served six presidents and counted Mark Twain a personal friend. Here, you can learn the fascinating story of his life. This 1824 structure is one of many unique displays offered on the six-acre complex. Painstakingly preserving a collection that began nearly 150 years ago, visitors have the opportunity to learn about the daily lives of pioneers of the Midwest. For anyone with an interest in military history, there is a gallery dedicated to the sacrifices our troops have made from the Revolutionary War up until those serving today. Race fans, no doubt, already recognize Salem as the home of the historic Salem Speedway. Here you can study an immense collection of photos and memorabilia at a much slower pace than you're used to seeing. Outside, you'll find the restored Pioneer Village, a one-of-a-kind living showcase of life in 1830s-era Northwest Territory. You'll see 200-year-old cabins, an old-school house and rustic church, along with the town grocery and an 1860s-style post office. Your trip is not complete, however, without stopping in at the Depot Railroad Museum, a replica of the town's train depot that preserves the history of the Monon Railroad while keeping alive the story of its creation by four Salem men who set out to build a railroad. Be sure to visit their website, www.johnhayscenter.org, or follow their Facebook pages, John Hayes Center, as well as the Depot Railroad Museum. Don't forget the duh. There you can view their calendar of events, book tours, and keep up with their festival schedule and wide array of programs and events with something for everyone. And as a group of people that love history, the Golden Silent Films podcast cannot recommend the John Hayes Center and all its surrounding awesomeness enough. So if you want to experience history or see what they have to offer, do check them out. We will leave the address in the show description. Thank you again to the John Hayes Center. A riot of motion picture adventure. Careless passion rules the picture. With a clash of swords, it turns thriller. Don Juan was made to please, says Eileen Creelman of the New York American. Music filled the theater as if the orchestra were really there. Vitaphone reproduced sound perfectly, synchronizing it throughout with the screen performance, wrote the New York Evening Post. And thusly, a new technological wonder was unleashed on the ears of the cinema-going world. Sounds like something worth chatting about, doesn't it? and welcome back to the theater of the Golden Silent Films podcast as we record our first episode in glorious Vitaphone sound. Most of the time, we here at the podcast are technologically inept. But today, for one episode only, we had to give the finest sound technology of the mid-1920s a try. There is no outdated technology we won't try for all of you fine listeners out there. We are reconvening here, elbow deep in the afterglow, of an awesome silent movie day. 
and it only seemed right that we dove into our experiences of the 2022 iteration of the silent film-focused holiday. So not only will we be talking about our local Pittsburgh-centric celebration, but we'll also be looking in on the film that we saw on this most cinematic of days, and that is 1926's Don Juan in a more in-depth manner. Before we get into the sultry, dulcet tones of Vitaphone magic and promiscuous men in tights, let's give the usual Golden Silent Films podcast social media roundup. As usual, do follow Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for up-to-date information on this little podcast. And for everyone on Twitter, just follow at Golden Silence One. That's at Golden Silence in the number one. Or just search for Golden Silence Cast, and we will be there. And these sites and screen names will be in our episode description in case you are interested in checking us out and would love to have you on board. At both social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episodes, and other fun and cool silent movie-related materials. And great profile photos of cats. Also, if you're listening to this program on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please leave a review, a rating, or both. All those ratings and reviews help a ton. Let all your wildest review-leaving dreams come true and help our little show grow. Whether getting us more exposure in the vast cacophony of podcasts or letting us know what we can do better, we appreciate the feedback and endeavor to bring you the best show possible. And do subscribe to Golden Silent Films Podcast, whilst our output can be seemingly hot or not. If you are subscribed, you will never miss an episode, and the moment we release new content, it will be downloaded right to your ears by your listening device of choice. And we have a lot of cool stuff coming down the pipe, and we do not want you to miss a second. This screening of 1926's Don Juan was one of three events held here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in celebration of the 2022 edition of Silent Movie Day, which occurs every September 29th. This was a great way to show our love and support of the silent cinema, and hope all of you out there were able to celebrate and do some really cool stuff with some really cool silent films. If you want more information on Silent Movie Day, you can always find more of that information on Facebook by searching Silent Movie Day or stop into the website at www.silentmovieday.org. Now, first versions first. We shall discuss the big screen viewing experience, and we do have to tell you how much we love seeing these classic flicks on the real-life big screen. For us here, there is definitely a hierarchy of the cinematic experience. And this strictly applies to the employees and subsidiaries of Golden Silence Films podcast, but we tend to think that streaming on a computer enters the list at a distant third. Watching a DVD or Blu-ray on a television, that's a definitely a solid second place. But the magic of watching a movie on the silver screen is an experience that just can't be beat. Whether it's a movie you've seen a million times or something completely new and exciting, watching it in the theater cannot be beat. And with that being said, we caught Don Juan at the awesome Row House Cinema, a small independent cinema in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania's Lawrenceville neighborhood. We've talked about this uh, place uh, last year's Silent Movie Day episode, but in case you missed it, the theater is located on Butler Street in Lawrenceville and can't be topped for a movie night. If you're ever in this neck of the woods, do stop by and support them with a movie ticket. And they do play quite a few silence, which makes them all the more cool in our eyes. Second, and probably more readily accessible, is the Warner Brothers Archive Collection Edition on DVD. Now, this disc is really rad and gives the viewer a taste of what theatergoers witnessed on that special night on August 6, 1926, the opening night of Don Juan. It's a disc with all of the Vitaphone shorts programs intact. 
Before we fully dive into the flick, you'll get a full rundown of the glorious sound-filled festivities of the event, but it includes a William Hayes intro, some musical interludes, and more. But this special edition is really a fantastic collection of this history-making event. If you're interested in owning this, Amazon can totally make all of your wildest Vitaphone listening dreams come true at an incredibly, incredibly decent price. Now, before the main event and the pre-show, let's start with the pre-pre-show, looking at the lives of some of the names on the marquee of this classic and historic film. Some folks might start with the iconic John Barrymore, but we felt there was a cooler story to be told when we took a gander at the writer of this film, Bess Meredith. Born Helen Elizabeth McGlashan, the future writer was born on February 12, 1890 in Buffalo, New York. Her start in show business life came at an early age. Her father was a manager at a local theater and she studied piano throughout her childhood. Meredith would also catch the writing bug in an early age and she started pursuing fiction writing. At the age of 13, she got her first paid gig as a writer, earning a dollar for writing a short fiction column in a local newspaper. When it came to the big time and making a career on stage, Meredith got the ball rolling in vaudeville as a comedian. She often performed monologues while accompanying herself on piano, a style she herself called piano logs. Her film career would start as an extra at D.W. Griffith's Biograph Studios in New York before moving to Los Angeles in 1911. There, Meredith worked as an, ex as an actress for five years, subsidizing her income with screen... With, let me try that one more time. She would subsidize her income with screenwriting gigs. Meredith met Wilfred Lucas in 1911 when he encouraged her to pursue screen acting. The following year, the two worked together on 1913's A Sailor's Heart, the first of many collaborations. They were eventually given their own production unit at Universal Studios where they produced the 1914 serial, Tray of Hearts. In 1914, after leaving Biograph to run their own outfit at Universal Manufacturing Company, she became a fairly well-known comic actress. Whilst most of her on-screen work came as an extra, her biggest role was as a titular character in the four-reel series, Best the Detectress in 1914. By the late teens, Meredith and Lucas would be a wedded item after their 1917 marriage. Not long after, the showbiz couple, couple traveled to Australia to work with Australian sportsman Snowy Baker. They made three films together, The Man from Kangaroo, The Jackaroo of Coolabong in 1920, and The Shadow of Lightning Ridge in 1921. Meredith co-directed the first two of those films. Turning to Victoria Sturtevant of the Women Film Pioneers Project, we learn a bit about their down-under excursion. Sturdivant writes, In 1920, Meredith and Lucas sailed to Australia to make action films with stuntman and star Reg Snowy Baker. Although they only stayed in Australia for a year, the experience with a small crew far from Hollywood gave Meredith the chance to take a more active role in motion picture production, including the cutting and titling of her films. Meredith and Lucas had one child during their marriage whom... As an adult, you may know as television writer John Meredith Lucas. They divorced in 1927 following her return from abroad, supervising the rescue of Ben-Hur in 1925. But you're saying, Ben-Hur? What did she have to do with that classic 1925 silent film starring Francis X. Bushman that we talked about in the last episode of the Golden Silent Films podcast available to download on all podcast outlets? First, I appreciate your memory and your promotion of the show. Second, Let's talk about that troubled international production for a bit. According to Fitzy, Fritzy Kramer in her Library of Congress article ben, entitled Ben-Hur 1925, 
we get a quick rundown of the madness, misfortune, and poor leadership that really fouled up the filming of the silent classic. Kramer writes, The 1925 version of Ben-Hur is infamous for its troubled shoot. Directors, stars, and writers were hired and then fired. The Italy-based production was halted and restarted and then halted again and pulled back to California. There are tales of burning ships, dead stuntmen, and unusable footage. So the studio needed a steady hand to assume control and get their production back on track. With a cinematic SOS called, MGM saw Bess Meredith as the perfect person to rein things in and take control. And she certainly did that. Famously, MGM sent Meredith to Italy in 1924 to help her rescue the production of Ben-Hur that was falling grossly behind schedule and running over budget. And she is listed on the writing credits with Carrie Wilson as continuity, although she is widely known to have supervised the enormous production. Meredith seems to have been prized particularly for her ability to handle sticky situations in a way that helped the studio run smoothly, wrote Sturdevant. Heading into and throughout 1926, Beth Meredith would really make her mark in Hollywood. According to Dr. Roseanne Welch in her biographical article for Script Magazine at scriptmag.com, Welch writes, 1926 proved to be a busy and productive year for Meredith. She wrote Don Juan, the story of the infamous great lover played by Hollywood's great lover John Barrymore, and adapted Herman Melville's Moby Dick into The Sea Beast. Then, Meredith co-founded the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 1928. When the first Academy Awards were held in 1929, Meredith was nominated for two screenplays, Wonder of Woman and A Woman of Affairs, which was adapted in 1928 from the novel The Green Hat, starring Greta Garbo. Meredith and Hungarian director Michael Curtis soon met after his arrival in the United States, while both were working at Warner Brothers Studios. They would marry in 1929 and unsuccessfully attempted to start a production company unit at MGM Studios in 1946. In 1934, Meredith and Gene Fowler would write a play entitled The Mighty Barnum. This play would prove rather successful and soon get cinematic treatment. Because they did such a great job on the stage version, the team of Bess and Gene would handle the screenplay duties on the feature film. Directed by Walter Lang and starring Wallace Beery as P.T. Barnum, the Mighty Barnum released December 23, 1934. The film also had Adolph Menju and Virginia Bruce in co-starring roles. Kovici Freed published the book version of The Mighty Barnum by Meredith and Gene Fowler. Now, this book would prove pretty historic in the annals of screenwriting and publishing, really. Let's turn to the 1934 United Artists press book hyping the film's release to learn about this historic publication. The press book explains... The Mighty Barnum, 20th century's screen story of the greatest showman starring Wallace Beery, marks an interesting innovation in book publishing. For the first time in the history of motion pictures, the shooting script of the film, written by Gene Fowler and Bess, Mer Beth Bess Meredith, was published in book form. The book was brought out by Kovici Freed to coincide with the picture's release through United Artists. The Mighty Barnum is currently at the theater. Throughout her time at MGM Studios, Meredith had mainly worked under Irving Thalberg. Upon his death in 1936, the new MGM executive saw fit to drop Meredith's contract. Rather than re-entering as a junior writer like the new execs offered, she decided to retire from screenwriting. Despite this, she had three credits after her alleged retirement, The Mark of Zorro in 1940, That Night in Rio in 1941, and The Unsuspected in 1947. 
like I was saying, the 30s were not prime era for best output wise. But the studio tumult and contract mess and such came at a time when Meredith was also battling a series of illnesses that would render her bedridden for much of the rest of her life. On top of all that, she fought panic attacks that started in her early 30s, which lasted throughout the rest of her life. Victoria Sturdivant, again of the Woman Film Pioneers Project, writes, Though she no longer maintained a formal career during these years, it is likely that she continued to exert herself creatively through the films of her third husband, Michael Curtis, director of Casablanca in 1942. Years later, Casablanca screenwriter Julius Epstein would recall her contributions to her husband's career. When we had a story conference and Mike came in the next day and made criticisms or suggestions, we knew that they were Beth, Beth Meredith's ideas, not his. So it was easy to trip him up. We'd make a change and say, what do you think, Mike? And he'd have to go back and ask Bess. Meredith and Curtis would separate twice, once in 1941 and again in 1960. However, they remained in contact after this separation, and Curtis even included Meredith in his will upon his death in 1962. The lack of info for Bess Meredith is a shame, and an even bigger bummer, her son didn't know much more than us. In his book, 80 Odd Years in Hollywood, Meredith's son, John Meredith Lucas, wrote, It unfortunately never seemed important that I learned mother's early history. She never wrote it, only mentioned a few disconnected anecdotes. I never asked. By the time the questions were formed, the answers had died. Now, having talked about the writer of the film, let's take a gander at the star of this film, John Barrymore. Born John Sidney Blythe on February 15, 1882 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Barrymore was the youngest son of famed actors Maurice and Georgina Drew, who used Barrymore as their stage name. Along with his older siblings, Ethel and Lionel, John would later become a member of Hollywood's most prominent acting dynasty. Tragically, he lost his mother at the age of 11 after Georgina died from what was then termed consumption while traveling to California for a cure in the summer of 1893. Often in the care of relatives when not in school, he once spent a summer in 1896 with Lionel on his father's rambling estate, which was stocked with exotic animals, while the elder Barrymore was away on tour. Two years later, John, known for his promiscuity even at that time, was expelled from the prestigious Georgetown Preparatory School after being seen leaving a brothel. Writer Julie Sorelli Hurick, in her article, A Huge Talent and Mess of a Man, John Barrymore at Last Gets His Due, from www.nj.com, explains, By the time he was 15, Barrymore had already lost his grandmother and lost his virginity to one of his father's lovers. A teenage romance with the great beauty Evelyn Nesbitt resulted in pregnancy and a proposal. It ended when Nesbitt's mother insisted she reject him and Nesbitt's other richer lover, Stanford White, paid for an abortion. Two years later, Barrymore's father died raving, probably from advanced syphilis. Heavily influenced, as all the Barrymore children were by their grandmother, the renowned actress Louisa Lane Drew, he made his stage debut in a performance of A Man of the World, in a production directed by his father in 1900. After Maurice experienced a complete breakdown during a stage performance in 1901, a horrified John was forced to commit his father to an insane asylum. 
Suffering the then incurable effects of syphilis, Maurice Barrymore later died at an institution in Amityville, New York. Gene Fowler, friend and biographer of John Barrymore, and we also mentioned a little bit ago in relation to Bess Meredith, explains the long-term impact of Maurice Barrymore's death in his 1943 book, Good Night, Sweet Prince. Fowler, the biographer and friend of John Barrymore, writes, The first great bellbeat of tragedy sounded for John Barrymore in 1903, the year that saw him at last on the New York stage. The sudden evil occurrence was the collapse of his father's once brilliant gay mind. The bleak overtone of this break breaking of his parents' reason never quite died away in Jack's thoughts. It echoed, knell-like, again and again in after years to plague his soul, and toward the end of his own life provoked the only discernible fear in an otherwise exceptionally brave character. The future heartthrob was always into the creative arts. Barrymore would study at King's College in England and New York's Art Students League prior to working for a time as a freelance cartoonist for the New York Evening Journal. Eventually, in need of money, the call of the family business drew him back to the stage. Soon after, Barrymore was appearing on stage full-time. By the early 1900s, Barrymore was on the stage, coasting through light comedies, but some of his friends and staunchest offender, Sister Ethel, knew there was more to him than this nickname, The Great Profile. He began taking serious work. His Richard III, first performed in 1920, was a triumph. When Hamlet followed two years later, he was hailed as the greatest Shakespearean actor of the age, writes Julius Cirilli Herrick. Throughout 1905, Barrymore was making his name on the stages of London, building a reputation for high drama in acclaimed productions of Shakespearean classics. A year later, while touring the U.S., he lived through the catastrophic San Francisco earthquake of 1906, before returning to New York in the bright lights of Broadway, where he quickly secured a reputation as one of the leading stage actors of the day in high-profile productions. Barrymore once said, Perhaps I am selfish as well as lazy. I like that word, perhaps. It is easier to play a noble character on stage and leave the nobility with the clothes and the makeup in the dressing room than to be a nice person off the stage. The stages, though, they wouldn't be enough for the great profile. There was a new world out there to conquer, as well as make a few bucks. John's brother Lionel had already made a name on the silver screen in the early teens, and John found himself joining his brother. Barrymore's first screen appearances came in the mid-teens, and such silence is as 1914's An American Citizen, followed by The Dictator in 1915. He would be big business for the film industry. By the roaring 20s, Barrymore would take on some of his most memorable screen roles, like 1920's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Sherlock Holmes in 1922, and this episode's focus, Don Juan, in 1926. Barrymore's early film work was problematic, writes Julius Cirilli Herrick. Close-ups exaggerated his theatricality, but entertaining. His Mr. Hyde was a loathsome monster with skeletal fingers and an enormous egg-shaped skull. In the film's most striking sequence, he literally becomes a human-headed spider. And while his Sherlock Holmes might infuriate purists, at the beginning of the film, he's a love-struck student. It showed him at his most dashing. Just because he was killing it in the cinemas, Barrymore never gave up the stage, though. His incredible stage career reached its most legendary with a lauded interpretation of King Richard III ruling Broadway a few years earlier. And many deemed it the definitive portrayal of Hamlet, which completed its long run in London after an extended Broadway engagement 
in the 1920s. Like we talked about previously in the Francis X. Bushman episode, Barry Moore's stage experience would serve him well in the oncoming era of the talkie. Barry Moore's commanding stage-trained voice was on full display in films like 1929's Show of Shows and 1930's Moby Dick in the role of Ahab, which he had played previously in the silent version several years earlier. During his Hollywood run, he would often co-star with the biggest female stars of the day. Now, Rasputin and the Empress, released in 1932, was a historic triple threat of a film for the Barrymore family. It marked the first and only time that John teamed up with siblings Lionel and Ethel Barrymore. He would team up with Lionel again in 1933. 1932, though, proved to be pretty darn good for John as he also starred with Greta Garbo in the box office hit Grand Hotel. As time passed, Barrymore moved from leading man to sought-after supporting player in a bunch of high-profile films. From a falling Broadway star in the comedy 20th century in 1934, followed by the role of Mercutio in 1936's big-screen adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. He worked regularly and successfully throughout the 30s. He would finish out the decade with Bulldog Drummond Comes Back in 1937, Marie Antoinette in 38, and tied it all up with The Great Man Votes in 1939. Always appreciative of a good laugh, regardless of whose expense it came at, Barrymore lampooned himself in The Great Profile in 1940, where he played a famous actor, addicted to alcohol, nearly destroying a show, only to have his leading lady save the day. Barrymore made his final film appearance in the 1941 comedy Playmates. This film would see John Barrymore looking pretty rough as his health was in great decline by this point. Less humorous was the fact that after decades of alcohol abuse, the brilliant actor's memory had become so poor that he was forced to read his lines from off-camera cue cards. Before long, the once-in-demand actor was finding it difficult to secure work. With both his health and finances in precipitous decline, Barrymore collapsed while rehearsing for an installment of band leader Rudy Valley's radio program in the spring of 1942. Gene Fowler explains, After the rehearsal of his lines, Jack left the broadcasting chamber to go to his dressing room. He became lost. He almost collided with a group of sightseers in the corridor of the building. They paused in their tourists' march to watch him as he tiredly leaned against the wall for a few moments. Several of the sightseers shook their heads as though in disapproval of the moral character of the man. Some of them handed down an immediate opinion that he was drunk again. After being taken to Hollywood Hospital, it was discovered that he had bronchial pneumonia and had lost consciousness. Further tests would reveal that the main cause of the collapse was cirrhosis of the liver. There was a secondary condition such as failure of kidney function, chronic gastritis, ulceration of the esophagus, and still more illnesses too long to list now. But needless to say, he was in bad shape. Several days later, he slipped into a coma and died at 10.20 on the night of May 29th, 1942. Die? I should say not, dear fellow. No Barrymore would allow such a conventional thing to happen to him, John Barrymore once said. Now, let's hop across the marquee and look at the life of Mary Astor. She was born Lucille Vasconcelos Langeke on May 3, 1906 in Quincy, Illinois. She was the only child of Helen Vasconcelos, an American, and Otto Ludwig Wilhelm Longeke, a German immigrant who made his money from a wide array of employment endeavors, ranging from teaching German to poultry farming. That is, 
until he realized he could cash in on his daughter's film success. Now, Astor's early career was directed by her father, who entered her into a beauty contest in the age of 14. That is our mandatory now requirement to mention a beauty acting general interest contest for this episode. If you are participating in the Golden Silent Films podcast contest drinking game, go ahead and have your drink for this episode. A year later, in 1921, she would appear in her first film, Sentimental Tommy, although her role would end up cut from the final release. After a few bit parts in Two Reelers, Astor, Astor was handpicked by John Barrymore to co-star in his 1924 picture, Bo Brummel. The two also began a romantic off-screen relationship at this time. With the quite bit older Barrymore helping to hone the teenage Astor's natural acting gifts. After the affair ended, Astor starred again with Barrymore in Don Juan in 1926. Miss Astor's professional successes were punctuated by personal tragedy, though. In 1930, her first husband, Kenneth Hawks, was killed in a plane crash while directing a movie. But that is not where the bad news would end, but we will revisit that in a bit. Now, perfecting her vocal technique in several stage productions, Astor was able to successfully transition to the new world of the talkies. Her early sound films included Holiday in 1930, playing the sister of Anne Harding, and 1932's Red Dust, in which she portrayed a frustrated wife attracted to Clark Gable. Her parents lived lavishly, taking nearly all of her salary, but in 1934 she put them on an allowance. Unable to continue embellishing the mansion and estate she had given them, they sued her for non-support. She said that from 1920 to 1930, I gave my father $461,000 while she kept only $24,000. She agreed to pay them $100 a month and the suit was dismissed. With all her tragedy and personal tumult, things were only going to get more scandalous for Mary Astor. And I do mean scandalous. Now, let's turn to the New York Times and writer Peter B. Flynn, who wrote Astor's obituary on September 26, 1987. He would write, But few of her films match the turmoil of her private life. In 1936, she was the center of one of Hollywood's most spectacular scandals when she sued Dr. Franklin Thorpe for legal custody of their four-year-old daughter, Marilyn. Dr. Thorpe had divorced Miss Astor a year earlier. The suit led to disclosure of her diary, which allegedly contained accounts of liaisons with many celebrities. Dr. Thorpe sought to use the diary to prove she was an unfit mother, and purported excerpts were published in newspapers under suggestive headlines, Flint continued. Miss Astor repeatedly maintained that the excerpts were lurid forgeries. She later acknowledged that the authentic portion published by one newspaper included a rather over-emotional account of a romantic interlude with George S. Kaufman, the playwright. Flint wraps up this convoluted tale by explaining, The trial judge ordered the diary sealed and impounded. It was inadmissible as evidence, she wrote later, because her former husband had removed pages involving himself. Miss Astor was granted custody of her daughter for nine months a year, with Dr. Thorpe allowed custody of the three other months. The diary was never made public, and a judge witnessed its burning in 1952. During the month-long trial, Hollywood producers, fearing the scandal would damage the film industry, pushed Astor to drop the suit, but she stuck to her guns and refused to stop fighting. At considerable risk to her reputation and career, she stayed in the fight so she could keep her daughter. Soon after the trial, people would hail her courage. Although her long career included a wide range of roles, 
She was often typecast as either a beautiful damsel in distress or a sympathetic matron. She demonstrated her acting range, however, in her most famous role, the lovely femme fatale Bridget O'Shaughnessy in John Huston's 1941 noir classic The Maltese Falcon. That same year, her role as Sandra Kovac in The Great Lie would earn Astor an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. Mary Astor, as successful as she was in film, her love life never seemed that magical. She would be married two more times, and both would end in divorce. Like her Don Juan co-star, Astor would also battle the bottle. Her beautiful but troubled personal life and financial pressures worsened a long-time drinking problem. After receiving advice to write about her life for therapeutic purposes, those writings would eventually become her 1959 autobiography, My Story. It was praised by reviewers and readers for its style and uncompromising insights. Astor's private life contained its share of drama and notoriety. Four marriages, three divorce, three divorces, alcoholism, suicide attempts, one of Hollywood's biggest sex scandals, and she would end up following her first book with a second in 1971 entitled A Life on Film. Her writing work wouldn't just lean towards the biographical. She would even pen a handful of fiction books. Astor retired to the motion picture country home in Woodland Hills in 1974 and contributed contributed to it with her writing income. Mary Astor, who had beauty, grace, and great acting chops, showcased in more than 100 movies over a 45-year career, died of complications from emphysema at the Motion Picture and Television Hospital in Woodland Hills, California. She was 81 years old. Now, having talked about the film's writer and the stars, it seems only right that we finish with a look at the Don Juan director himself, Alan Crosland. Crosland was born in New York City, New York, and attended Dartmouth College. After graduating, he took a job as a writer with New York Globe magazine. With an interest in theater taking hold, he started acting on stage, appearing in several productions with Shakespearean leanings. Crossland found his way into the motion picture industry in 1912 at Edison Studios in the Bronx, New York. It was there where he worked at various jobs for a couple years as he learned the business to the point where he was directing short films. By 1917, he was directing feature-length films, and in 1920, directed All of Thomas and the Flapper, one of her final films before her death in September of that year. By 1925, Crossland was working for Jesse L. Lasky and flame, famous players Lasky when he was hired by Warner Brothers to, direct, to work at their Hollywood studios. He had directed several silent films for Warner Brothers, including Don Juan, starring John Barrymore in 1926. Like we mentioned earlier, Don Juan was the first feature-length film with synchronized Vitaphone sound effects and a musical soundtrack, though it doesn't have any spoken dialogue. Now, directing a picture with synchronized sound and no dialogue was not enough for Crosland. He wanted it all, so to speak, sound-wise. That's why he was chosen to take the helm of 1927's The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson. The Jazz Singer upped the ante by adding the first feature-length motion picture with both a synchronized music score as well as lip-synchronous singing and speech. This film would make him famous as he was responsible for the first sound pictures that ushered in a new era of the movie business. Crosland died in 1936 at the young, young age of 1941 as a result of an automobile accident on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. He is interred at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and his, where his grave remained unmarked for 67 years, until a headstone was donated in 2003. So, as we already covered with the career of director Alan Crossland, the movie-going audience was about to experience 
some really new and cool auditory sensations in their local movie halls. And the technology that made these first forays into sound was the Vitaphone. Though not the first try at sound, it certainly was the most successful. For a bit at least. Before we get fully into the technical jargon, let's paint a picture of what a trip to the movies entailed, sound-wise at least. Live music was critical to the film-going experience in these early days of film. In fact, there wasn't really a guarantee that the music being played was uniform to every showing. Some theaters had more, while some would have quite a bit less. Shorts would often accompany the features, and sometimes vaudeville acts appeared before and in between the films. According to writer, according to writer Richard Hildreth and his essay, Vitaphone Vaudeville, 1926-1930, we learn about some of the earlier attempts at sound on film. Hildreth writes, Vitaphone does occupy a place in film history as the first synchronized sound and image system to meet with commercial success. Its predecessors had failed, tarring the concept of talking pictures. Thomas Edison's Kinetophone was introduced in 1913, abandoned by 1915, and it attempted to synchronize phonograph cylinders with movies. There was also Phonofilm and the Vivaphone, among others. France had the Chronophonograph and the Phonorama. Germans endured the synthroscope and the biophone. But let's turn a little earlier than usual to critical friend of the show, Mordant Hall. Usually he pops up later in the film, later in the show to talk about the film, but this is a special event, so it's only right that we introduce him a little earlier in the episode. So Morden Hall and his research into the magic of the Vitaphone system came out on August 7th, 1926 edition of the New York Times. In it, Morden Hall writes, Electricity is said to have solved the difficulties in finding a realistic adjunct of sound to the shadows on the screen. This discovery or invention is a result of years of research in the Western Electric Company and the Bell Telephone Laboratories, supplemented by the efforts of Walter J. Rich, now president of the Vitaphone Corporation and the Warner Brothers. Hildreth elaborates, Sam Warner would today be considered an early adopter of new technology. While other movie moguls viewed the advent of broadcast radio as either an annoyance or a threat, Warner realized that it could be used to sell pictures. After Sam Warner saw a demonstration of the Western, Western Electric synchronized sound system, he convinced eldest brother Harry and Goldman Sachs to purchase the new toy. The September 1925 deal resulted in the creation of the Vitaphone Company, which was located in the former Vitagraph Studios in Brooklyn. Warner Brothers owned the majority interest in Vitaphone and Western Electric, who saw no other interested parties upon the horizon, granted Vitaphone an exclusive license to the sound system, which included the right to sublicense the technology to other producers. On the bummer side of the ledger, Sam Warner wouldn't live long enough to see the triumph of Vitaphone. Refusing to, refusing to consult a physician despite a chronic severe headache, Sam died of an infection from an abscessed tooth on October 5, 1927, one day before the New York premiere of The Jazz Singer. The full process of making a Vitaphone system work seemed pretty complicated to my feeble and technologically backwards mind, but it basically goes like this. The soundtrack was was not printed on the film itself but issued separately on phonograph records the discs recorded at 33 and a third rpm a speed first used for this system and typically 16 inches in diameter 
would be played on a turntable physically coupled to the projector motor while the film was being projected. Despite the seeming success of the format, it had its, it had its weak points and growing pains. Hildreth continues, The Vitaphone was a sound-on-disc system developed by Bell Telephone Laboratories and Western Electric. The system was first embraced by the Warner Brothers, and over 100 short subjects were produced at Warner Brothers' first national studios in the mid-20s. The cumbersome equipment used to produce the show and show the product did not create a demand for more talking films, and the inconsistent quality of the synchronized sound system often produced unintentional laughter from audiences. Before we fully get into the shenanigans of the tights-clad lover business proper, let's talk about that fateful premiere night that put the Vitaphone tech to use on the grandest stage possible. Now, we can actually start our chat about the official pre-show and take a look at the Vitaphone shorts that were played at that historic showing 96 years ago. R.E. Sherwood, in his August 26, 1926 review for Life magazine, break down, breaks down the shorts played before the main feature, as well as some glowing words about the Vitaphone magic itself. Sherwood would write, There can be no doubt that the Vitaphone is a real triumph. It is as far ahead of DeForest's phonofilm as the phonofilm was ahead of Edison's ill-fated kinetophone. The Vitaphone has reproduced speeches, songs, and instrumental numbers by Marion Talley, Will H. Hayes, Misha Ellman, and others. On the female voices, the choruses, and the violin solos, it is a trifle unsure of itself. But in a solo by Giovanni Martinelli and a ukulele number by Roy Smeck, it proved to be extraordinarily impressive. So, Here's a quick explanation of the different shorts we, an audience of the past, got to experience. They ran the gamut in their use of sound, from spoken word to opera to various instruments and orchestra selections. Like you mentioned, we got Will H. Hayes, president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, address the audience. You had the New York Philharmonic. You had Misha Ellman. You had Roy Smeck. You had Marion Talley. You had Herman Heller, Ephraim Zimelist, and Harold Bauer playing some music. You had Giovanni Martinelli with the Vitaphone Symphony Orchestra conducting, conducted by Herman Heller. And you also had Anna Case in La Fiesta, a soprano solo. Now, Morden Hall goes a bit deeper into the details around the performances of Misha Ellman and singer Marion Talley. Hall writes, Misha Ellman... The noted violinist was seen and heard playing Dvorak's Humoresque with Joseph Bonimo at the piano, and every note that came to one's ears synchronized with the gliding bow and the movements of the musician's fingers. It seemed at times that the sound was so distinct that during a pause, had a pin been dropped in the studio, it would have been heard. The Caro Nome aria from Rigoletto, rendered by Marion Talley, gave one an excellent idea of the qualities of the singer's voice and also of her acting. As she retreated from the front of the stage, her voice became modulated, and then there were times where one heard her as if from a front seat in the Metropolitan Opera. These shorts were a really cool sampler platter of what treasures and experiences Vitaphone held for the future of film. I love the idea of attaching this to a big-time flick, so it really got out and blew the minds of the maximum number of moviegoers possible. If there was a really cool way to sell people on something, this was the way to do it. If you were in the theater, you heard instruments, singing, even simple speaking. It gave you all you needed and was a great addition to the orchestra that scored Don Juan itself. 
not to be outdone, friend critic of the show, Morden Hall, also piped in to describe his views of the pre-show short collection and the impact of this sound technology for the future. In that same New York Times article, he wrote, The future of this new contrivance is boundless, for inhabitants of small and remote places will have the opportunity of listening to and seeing grand operas as given in New York, and through the picturing of the vocalists and small groups of musicians or instrumental choirs or of orchestras, the Vitaphone will give its patrons an excellent idea of the singer's acting and an intelligent conception of the efforts of musicians and their instruments. Operatic favorites will be able to be seen and heard, and the genius of singers and musicians will have, who have passed will still live. Now that's all super cool and shows the Vitaphone tech will have a major impact on film and will surely be around for a long, long time, right? Right? Well, after the movie breakdown, we will reconvene here and speak about the post-Don Juan life of Vitaphone. But for now, I say it's movie time. How's that sound? So having said all of that, Warner Brothers Pictures Incorporated and the Vitaphone Corporation present Mr. John Barrymore as Don Juan, inspired by the legend of the greatest lover of all ages. Now, there's a long cast list here, but some of the highlights and big players are Cesar Borgia, played by Warner Oland, Lucretia Borgia, played by Estelle Taylor, Count Gianna Donati, played by Montague Love, Mai, the Lady-in-Waiting, played by Myrna Loy, Adriana Della Varnes, played by Mary Astor, and Padrillo, played by Willard Lewis. Prologue. We are told right away that the tale they tell of Don Juan, immortal lover and doubter of women, is bold with life and color. A merry, insolent tale slashed with intrigue, yet its beginning is as gray as the old Spanish castle of Juan's earliest memory. This is where we are introduced to Don Jose de Maria, de Marana, father of Don Juan, who is also played by John Barrymore in some double duty acting. We see the elder Don and his son Juan and his beautiful and beloved lady Donna Isabel. They seem to be a happy family in their castle, but we learn that from the shadows of this gothic world, strange creatures emerged, souls curiously warped with hate. Those creatures are some of Jose's helpers slash henchmen. We find out Don Jose will be delivering treasure to the king, and he will return home to his treasured wife. The family says a loving goodbye before Jose heads out. Jose makes his way out before horsing up and heading out on his mission, Donna Isabel and the young Juan wave as he leaves. Not long after he leaves, however, do we see a happy marriage isn't what it seems. An interloper sneaks into the castle and is helped up by Isabel, who has a little something going on on the side. Jose's assistant sees this and lights a signal fire to alert his boss to return at once. Isabel and her lover are canoodling as Jose returns. At first, he doesn't believe what he has been told. He storms his way into the castle and as Isabel and her side guy scurry, and he hides in a hole in the wall, a literal hole in the wall. She tries to explain herself, only to be found out as young Juan looks on. He knows the fellow is in the wall and has his people seal the hole in the wall as she looks on in terror, and fill it in they do. Jose maniacally laughs as Isabel tries to open the wall back up. Snivel, you lying wretch. You betrayer of men and the honor of men, he yells at her, out before I kill you. 
Young Juan is watching all this and crying uncontrollably. Donna Isabel heeds her husband's words and leaves in shame as Don Jose consoles his son by explaining, Yonder goes your mother, and with her goes my faith in women. In the years that followed, Don Jose kept his bitterness alive after a curiously sardonic fashion, and banquet torches flared nightly in the gaunt halls of the Marana Castle. With time having passed, we are in the banquet hall filled with honeys for the Senor Don, and even some cozying up to a young Don Juan. But one of the ladies there was the jealous Donna Elvira, who had enjoyed the unique honor of Don Jose's exclusive favor for two months, but now she realizes she is old news to Jose. Realizing she is out of favor with father, she gets up close to the young Juan, only to be put on blast by Jose. Is not one member of the family enough to contaminate, he asks her. This pushes her over the edge. Donna Elvira pulls a knife out of her bosom and plunges it into Don Jose. Elvira tries to plead her love to the dying man, only to have Jose re recite his thesis statement when it comes to women. He says this, my threefold debt to women is now complete. Life, disillusionment, death, he explains as his assailant is taken away. Father and son share a touching final moment before Don Jose leaves his son by saying, This is my legacy to you. Beware of giving your love to women. Go out into the world and take their love when it pleases you. Smile and forget. And with that, Jose passes on in a truly epic, super crazy, over-the-top acted death scene. And that is how we finish our prologue, setting the scene for what is to come. Now, Morton Hall writes, Warner was sufficiently astute to screen the prologue, or the first chapter of the photoplay, before announcing an intermission. By the time the first stretch of Don Juan faded out, the spectators were in the mood of a person who does not wish to leave an interesting novel. Now the story, we're back. We find ourselves in Rome, the mighty Vatican towering heavenward above a seethe of corruption, scented velvets brushing against the plague sores of the wretched. We see some really cool sets in such of Rome as the Borgia make their way into the town square, as we are told the Borgia tyranny over Rome and its subjects was one of ceaseless cruelty, torturing and crushing those who opposed their regime. The three Borgia we meet are the head of the table and secret ruler of Rome, Cesar Borgia, played here by Warner Oland. If you are curious about Warner Oland, it is your lucky day. Johan Werner Oland was born in northern Sweden on October 3, 1879. After a few years honing his craft on the stage under the name Werner Oland, he made his film debut in 1912. Though possessing no Asian background, Oland was able to build a career on portraying Asian characters. His star-making turn came when he starred in 1929's The Mysterious Dr. Fu Manchu. His most well-known role was that of Honolulu detective Charlie Chan in 15 or so films in the 1930s. The Swede would die in Stockholm on August 6, 1938 at the young age of 58. In the movie, his sister, the inspiration of his vicious crimes, beauty without pity, ambition without remorse, Lucretia Borgia, played by Estelle Taylor. And finally, Count Giano Donati, kinsman of the Borgia, with a roving eye as keen as his sword. He is played by the fabulously named Montague Love. Now, Donati spies a cute and innocent-looking lady, the daughter of the Duke de la Varnesse, 
a follower of the sworn enemy of the Borgia, the Orsini. She is played by Mary Astor, whom we talked about a little bit earlier. Lucretia says Donati's whims must be gratified, and she will be invited to the big dinner party. Also, part of this group is the wonderful Myrna Loy as Mai, the lady-in-waiting. She points out the house of Don Juan, a young Spanish grandee, lately arrived from the University of Pisa. Mai explains that he is handsome and rich and of the most exquisite manners. Naturally, this gets Lady Lucretia percolating when Caesar chimes in, and if rumor does not lie, half the fair ones of Rome have already succumbed to his charm. When told he is the great lover, that only increases Lucretia's lust. She will be the one who will conquer him, she claims. She orders a messenger to deliver an invitation for that evening's ball. We now move on to Don Juan's home, where innocence might enter, but never depart. What a great line. It totally sets the tone for Don Juan as a character, and really sets the scene for what will come later on. And even super soon with this scene we're about to talk about. Inside La Casa de Don Juan, we meet his faithful attendant and imitator, Padrillo. He is played by Willard Lewis. I have a bit about Willard later in the show, so we'll get semi-biographical later on. But for now, he is opening all the fan mail and gifts various ladies have sent the great lover, and will soon be playing traffic cop for Don Juan. This scene gets a little confusing if you haven't seen the movie. Basically, Juan has three ladies at his place. Little Trucia had managed to elude her watchful uncle, the Duke Margioni, and awaited the tardy Don Juan. Padrillo tries to tell her he is late, but she thinks it's another woman. Then we have Imperia, a famous frailty, had managed to elude her jealous admirer, the Duke Margioni. Padrillo tries to hide Trucia as Imperia saunters in. He again says Don Juan has been detained. She thinks it's another woman as well. The two women find each other, and Padrillo tries to calm everyone only for Don Juan to handsomely saunter in. Don Juan charms both of them and flirts with both, only to realize a third woman has been here all along too. The Duchess Margioni has managed to elude her vigilant husband, the Duke Margioni. There is a lot of great interplay and physical gags in this scene, as Don Juan and Padrillo try to keep everything together as three lovers all occupy the same space at the same time. Lots of sun and misdirection allow Don Juan to really get out of the sticky situation. He uses the ruse of Duke Margioni to expedite the departures of all the paramours. You really see the charm and charisma that John Barrymore was working with and the comedic chops of Willard Lewis. It all works so great here. And the punchline to this gag is that the Duke actually does arrive and Juan is able to charm and outwit him enough to leave despite making sweet time with three women in his life. Now, in this bit, like I said, John Barrymore gets his fair share of smooching in. And it wasn't lost on the viewers of the film. In fact, R.E. Sherwood has us covered on that front. He writes, some press, some press matter issued in connection with the showing of Don Juan assures us that in the course of this lengthy film, John Barrymore receives or delivers exactly 191 kisses. The figure is probably correct, but it seems extremely conservative to me. Certainly, Mr. Barrymore has established a new record for running broad osculation over the 12 reel route. As the most celebrated lover in history, he literally leaps from lip to lip with optional stopovers at each point of interest. Among the actresses who are favored by his lingering caresses are Estelle Taylor, Mary Astor, Jane Winton, 
Phyllis Haver, June Marlowe, Helen de Algy, Hedda Hopper, and various unidentified but luscious extra girls. Sherwood wrote in Life magazine dated 8-26-1926. With things calmed down, there is a knock at the door. It is a delivery man with an invitation on behalf of the Borgia. Don Juan cautions Padrillo about opening it. Borgia parchment is oft-times poisoned, he explains. The invitation reads, It is our pleasure that you present yourself this eve at the Palazzo Santa Maria, signed Lucretia Borgia. Don Juan asks Padrillo what plans he has for the evening. The black book he has has five ladies marked down for various rendezvous throughout the evening. Skip them, he tells his faithful friend. They have a party to attend. That night, at the Palazzo Santa Maria, we see the big entrance of the Duke della Varnes, the Lady Adriana della Varnes, whom we met earlier as well. The Borgia are looking at them all sorts of creepy, all very creepy-like. Lucretia isn't impressed with her, a little flat perhaps, but she'll console yourself with the ample figure of her father's fortune. Marry her by all means, Gianno. Adriana asks her father why they went, knowing the Borgia and the Orsini are sworn enemies. He tells her, the invitation was a command. It is death to defy the Borgia, even though it may be fatal to obey. Lucretia is preoccupied waiting for her target to arrive. She orders Mai to inform her the instant Juan arrives. Then we cut to the arrival of said Lothario. As they head in, he sees the feet of a castle made on the balcony. He tells Padrillo, if her face matches her feet, God help us both. So we learn Don Juan is a foot guy, which is a fun little side fact. He eventually sees her face and is all about it. He climbs the balcony to get some action and satisfaction. But Maya sees what is going on and has a guard alert the Borgia. Padrillo sees this and makes his way to his boss. Cesar hears from the guard. While the mistress waits, our Spaniard dallies with the maid, he tells her. They go tell Lucretia and she heads right over to catch him in the act. She goes to surprise him, but Padrillo saves the day and switches places with Juan, so Lucretia opens the balcony door to see Padrillo and the maid getting frisky. Juan comes from behind and chastises his servant. My apologies for the wretch, gracious lady. I had hoped to improve his morals by my own example. With Padrillo and the maid gone, he does his best flirting with the Lady Borgia. As he talks to her, his attention is grabbed by Adriana della Varnes, who is walking outside at the moment. He sees Gianno trying to get affection from her, which Lucretia notices this interest that Don Juan is showing. Perhaps you are not aware that Donati is our best swordsman. He may resent your interest in his lady, she warns. Now, while we're here with Lucretia, it seems right that we take a look at the at the babe behind the Borgia, if you will, Estelle Taylor. Ida Estelle Taylor was born on May 20th, 1894 in Wilmington, Delaware. Taylor was a veteran of both stage and screen by the time we meet up with her here in Don Juan. Her cup of coffee at Paramount Pictures saw her get some plum rolls, including in Sesame Mills' The Ten Commandments in 1923. The oncoming sound revolution was not stopping her as she worked well into the 40s. She would be married three times, the most famous of those being to boxing legend Jack Dempsey. Taylor would die of cancer in Los Angeles on April 15, 1958, at the age of 63. So after this meeting, Lucretia leaves and heads to a hidden dungeon area 
run by the Borgia family chemist slash poisoner Neri. She thinks she is being sneaky, but Don Juan sees her disappear into a secret entrance. Inside, she and Cesar are getting some poison to deliver to the Duke Delavarnes. None so dreaded as Neri, the sorcerer, whose rare and subtle poisons were distilled in the secret room of the Borgia Palace, we're told. Well, that's partially true. As you will see, the poison they get is hardly subtle. Supposedly, this poison will cause a heart attack, but eh, not that simple. So now we're back at the party. The Borgia make their move to make the Duke die, but Don Juan is wise to their schemes. Just as a poisoned glass of wine is about to be handed to the Duke, Don Juan swoops in to intercept the dastardly drink. He knows he has it, but Lucretia and her fellow Borgia don't know this. She tries to sweet-talk him, and they go to the balcony. He toasts to her charm before feigning drinking. He offers her a sip, but she declines. We Borgia do not share with one another, she explains. He then pours the drink onto some flowers, and they burn and wither up. He starts laughing, knowing he has gotten one over on the Borgia. He is interrupted by Cesar, who proclaims, We Borgia approve of cleverness in our friends. We have no clever enemies. Don Juan, it appears, has made some powerful enemies. But since he is Don Juan, he still makes an advance on Lucretia, telling her he will meet her at midnight. Back with her family, Cesar offers his services to slay the Spaniard if she fails to win his heart. She thanks him, but says he will live and love her. Don Juan makes his way outside, meeting Adriana in her carriage. Tonight, you saved my father's life, she says. What can I do to prove my heart's gratitude? He says he will tell her later. And with that, she leaves. Though Mary Astor was the original plan for playing the leading lady in Don Juan, and, and was chosen and approved by Barrymore, there was a change that was intended, though never followed through with. Jean Fowler, a Barrymore biographer, wrote, When the Sea Beast was completed, Barrymore began a second picture under his Warner Brothers contract, Don Juan. Mary Astor, the leading lady for that photo play, had been chosen and approved by Jack before he met Dolores. That Dolores being Dolores Costello. Fowler continues, The studio refused to make the change in its plan, although Barrymore tried to place Dolores in the cast. It's now midnight, and Lucretia eagerly awaits her gentleman caller. This is when Mai starts causing some trouble. She points out that her lady points out to her lady that Don Juan is late, and perhaps it is because of Lady Adriana. Lucretia gets super angry at the thought and pushes Mai out of the room. We hop over to Adriana's place and see Don Juan sneaking his way into her chambers. She is surprised to see him at such an hour. She seems pretty frightened only for Don Juan to force himself upon her. Pushed away, Don Juan says, you promised to reward me, but perhaps you fear Donati, your swordsman friend. She tries to fend him off with a knife, only to faint. He carries her to a sofa and lays her down. She comes in, only to still be frightened by Juan. He takes his leave back out the window from which he came in. The days pass slowly for Juan. He has been waiting to see Adriana. At the same time, Lucretia and Mai come across Juan and Adriana. They sneak in to find the two talking. Juan tells Adriana, You have given me a new faith, faith in the goodness of women. Teach me, help me so that I may never lose that faith again. That does not go over well, though, with my chipping in, What did I tell you, my lady? The chapel garden holds more allure for him 
than your grace's balcony. Needless to say, this sets off the Borgia something fierce. Before night, Rome was in a tumult and terror stalked with dripping sword. All this to appease the outraged vanity of a Borgia and snare a defenseless girl. The home of the Duke della Varnes, the secret object of the Borgia, Borgia's unprovoked attack on the Orsini. He is placed under arrest, but a pardon is still possible. Cesar explains, My kinsman, Count Donati, desires your daughter in marriage. Consent and become our loyal follower. Adriana is tore up, and it's the only the threat of her father being beheaded that changes her mind. Her father accepts, and Adriana is locked away with Donati almost immediately. From Padrillo, Juan learns that the Orsini have been attacked, and their followers killed or imprisoned at St. Angelo, and the Duke is threatened. And amongst the madness, two masked figures pay a visit to Juan. It is Lucretia and Mai. Lucretia explains, twice I summoned you and you ignored me. Tonight, I lay aside my pride and come to you. He ignores her plea as Padrillo gets him suited up. I am going to the Palazzo della Varnes. May I arrive in time? Lucretia fires back, you fool. Do you think Donati will allow any harm to come to her? Don Juan doesn't believe her claims. And with that, Juan heads out into the mob. An angry Juan makes his way to the castle. He is lied to regarding the whereabouts of Adriana, and he leaves only to see her being assaulted in the window. He climbs up to some plant life to get to the window. Donati hears him. He tells Adriana if she does any funny business, he will kill the intruder. Juan enters. She tells him there is no one else there and that he must leave. Juan doesn't believe her, eventually sniffing out Donati. Heartbroken, he starts to make his way out of the castle. Out pops Lucretia, trying to gain Juan's love yet again. He gives one last look at Adriana before entering Lucretia's carriage. Rome celebrated on a certain evening a month later the marriage of Adriana della Varnes to the Count Donati, with drunken shouts taking up the refrain of the cathedral bells. And as the bells ring, this is a great example of how the sound works in this picture. You can record actual bells ringing so that when bells appear on screen, the viewer gets a super realistic bell experience. So as the bells ring, Don Juan, he's a broken man. The Borgia are living the high life and Donati is all about his coerced beloved as they celebrate their impending wedding. Even a party with high orgy potential is not enough to lift the spirits of the great lover. The bells from the palace are driving him mad. He's in a dark place now, figuratively and literally. To make things worse, a plast fling of his is back and warning him that her husband is found out. If he finds me, it will end everything for me. Honor, happiness, my very life, she says. The husband is soon behind her at the door. The wife says she will kill her if he finds her. The angry husband sees her hiding just as she stabs herself. Juan looks troubled and annoyed at this whole situation. But the husband yells something that resonates with Juan. Betrayer of women, destroyer of men's faith, I call down the wrath of God upon you. Don Juan orders everyone out of the house. The husband has lost his mind. The death of his wife has sent him over the edge. Don Juan tells two onlookers, a tragedy, gentlemen, in place of the usual comedy. The husband, as it happens, has killed his wife. The husband is taken away. As he is let out, he yells that Juan's hands are dripping with her blood. Again, the bell the bells mock and annoy Juan. 
Padrillo tells them they will not stop ringing until the banquet is over and Donati escorts his bride to their nuptial chambers. Now this is a really great spot to put over the extras in this movie. Morden Hall of the New York Times points out the players, arrayed in 15th century costumes, conduct themselves with marked ability, appearing to sense that restrained action demanded of them in a period picture. And this aids materially in making this film interesting. Now, Adriana is forlorn and terribly sad as she realizes what her future holds. Now, this part of the film has a big dance number that the Borgia watch. A live performance of dancing in theater, right? An event that definitely makes them look like even bigger jerks. But one cool thing about this bit is the musical score that accompanies the dancing. And that is the perfect vehicle for showing off the power of the Vitaphone. And for the little blurb about the music in Don Juan, let's turn back to Ari Sherwood. He writes, Don Juan was accompanied by the New York Philharmonic Orchestra via the Vitaphone, indicating that it will be possible in the future to dispense with orchestras and organists in movie theaters. Well, I, for one, will shed no tears. I'm tired of hearing hearts and flowers during views of the United States Cavalry riding to the rescue and horses, horses, horses during tender love scenes. Now, after that song and dance, Adriana is told to prepare for the nuptials, but Mai is the bearer of bad news in alerting the Borgia that those orders have been defied. After some pearl clutching, Donati starts to go after his bride-to-be. He is stopped by Cesar, who tells him, You are too impetuous, my Giano. A howdy bride makes a stubborn wife. She must come to you. So Donati calls for his wife, who can't bring herself to do it. When she finally starts to open the door, a sword-bearing hand stops her. The Borgia watch the door open, only to see Don Juan make his entrance. Your bride is here, he tells them. Come and get her. This leads to a great sword fight between Juan and Donati. Just as the fight is about to kick off, though, Adriana tells Juan her side of the story. You must believe me, Juan. My marriage was plotted by the Borgia. I swear I am innocent, she explains. Now, next up, we get this really awesome sword fight. The two men go back and forth, swashbuckling all over the castle. And to make the swashing even more immersive, the swords are given sound effects, which is a really cool touch for this time and space. The filming of this battle really helps sell the emotion and franticness of the fight. It's sped up, making every lunge and stab wilder and more breathtaking. Soon, the sword fight turns into an MMA ground-and-pound battle between two bloody dudes. The fight ends with Juan stabbing and killing Donati, for which he is quickly arrested for murder and sent to the dungeon of St. Angelo. As he is taken away, Lucretia still seems to be infatuated with Juan and gives a wry smile that she has won. Juan sarcastically reciprocates and blows her a kiss as he is taken away. Morton Hall was a big fan of Estelle Taylor's performance, as he explains in his article thusly. She, Estelle Taylor, betrays imagination in handling her role, which is by no means an easy one, for Lucretia is proud, but the dawn is surrounded by the glamour of a thousand loves, and therefore she has to, at first, be merely mildly interested in the Spaniard, then vindictive, then sure of her own unrivaled attractiveness, and finally, she gives the idea of nonchalant revenge, as if the whole matter had never really meant very much to her. So, in addition to Juan being arrested, Adriana is taken away too, as an accomplice in the murder of her husband. That there are some 
is some trumped up stuff, I do say so myself. She is taken away on these charges just to get revenge for what she has done. She is to be taken to the tower to spend some terrifying time with Borgia poison expert Neri. When the gates of St. Angelo clanged shut upon a prisoner, he is never heard of again. For certain death awaited him in a slimy cell below the level of the River Tiber, we are told. And that is precisely where we find Don Juan. In his cell, the river flows by. His neighbor in the next cell sends him a note downstream. It tells him that a block on the second level is loose. He uses this information to start dislodging the block. He tries pulling it as his buddy pushes. The block movement has to stop when Juan is visited again by Lucretia. She says his quarters are none too tidy, to which he responds, They will serve, I think, for the brief time I remain here. Juan is ever the optimist. She attempts to make a deal for his freedom, but he refuses, believing the scaffold to be less dangerous. She fires back that he will regret his decision before midnight, when he will be executed. So Lucretia leaves, but takes one more shot at Juan. She boasts, As this is your last hour, it will comfort you to know that Adriana was faithful to you. It served our purpose to have you believe otherwise. It will amuse us to place Adriana at Neri's disposal on the rack. Lucretia really does make for a great villain. In fact, she really is the main villain of the picture. The other two dudes don't really have that much lasting villainy the way Lucretia did. Especially at this point, she really does some proverbial mustache twirling. And we were reminded that he will be executed in one hour. In the meantime, Juan has loosened the block and crosses into the other cell. To his shock, it is the man he had sent away falsely for the murder of his wife. The man shouts that God is just. Juan can't believe this turn of events. The prisoner adds, Hell gapes wide for thee, my hands shall send thee thither. And this reunion of sorts is happening. A block breaks loose in the cell wall. Water comes rushing in from the Tiber. A guard checks the commotion and sees that Juan's cell is filling with water as the two men fight next door. My wronged wife agonizes in hell. Thou shalt not join her there. Juan escapes and swims out the hole in the wall. He swims across the river and makes it to land. We are now taken to the tower of the Borgia Palace, a room of horrors, Neri's workshop. Adriana is tied up as Neri makes his poisonous concoctions. With his attention dedicated elsewhere, Juan sneaks up behind the torturer and fights him. The fight goes off screen as the Borgia clan enter to witness the torture of Adriana. Neri makes his way back out to greet his employers. Such a lovely subject should give us an amusing transformation. Prolong our diversion to the utmost, they bark at him. Neri takes the poison and lowers Adriana from the rack. He looks at her, and we find out it's Juan. He mimics giving her the deadly drink. They say they must go watch Juan be executed, and will return to see Adriana finished off. As they make their escape, a still-conscious Neri rings an alarm bell. As everyone rushes to the torture room, Juan and Adriana make their exhilarating escape down a wall of the palace and ride off on horseback. The soldiers of the Borgia are soon in hot pursuit. Here we get some really cool chase scenes through the countryside. Adriana gets, to gets off to hide in a hollow tree as Juan doubles back to battle his pursuers. We get chases and sword fights all on horseback. All super cool stuff that turned out great on film. He is able to get his last two chasers to ride off a cliff and into a river. 
He swings back to pick up Adriana. With her on his horse, he tells her, Before us, beloved, is Spain and happiness. And they ride off literally into the sunset, smooching the whole way. And it seems most appropriate to end this film breakdown with this quote from Mordant Hall. He writes, Mr. Barrymore leaps through the scenes of this production in a captivating manner. And sometimes the principal character and the story remind one of a Fairbanks film. And in the amorous moments, one is impelled to think of Valentino. So with the film coming to a conclusion, let's move on in time a little bit. Let's talk about the post-movie life of Vitaphone. So for all the snazzy next-gen tech brought to bear with the Vitaphone, there was still plenty of wonk to be had. These problems would ultimately doom Vitaphone in these early days of the sound format wars. First, distribution would become a big headache for everyone involved, both film companies and theater owners. For the whole setup to work, Vitaphone records had to be distributed along with the film prints. This meant a whole other system of supply chain work had to be built on top of the already existing film distribution structure. That means more work, more workers, and more importantly, more money. These Vitaphone records were never meant to be sturdy either. With each, each one would only get 20 or so plays before breaking down and requiring replacement. Theaters would require multiple copies in order to cover all of their showings. In addition to the playback fragility, they were just straight up fragile in almost every way. The shipping process often led to broken discs throughout the delivery journey. And all of that translates to more and more cost for everyone involved. But, hypothetically speaking, Let's say you received your disco sound in minty fresh condition, right? What could possibly go wrong, right? You take your Vitaphone disc, play it along with the film, and voila, the synchronization is still all jacked up. If a record was incorrectly queued up, it could start out of sync with a picture, causing the projectionist to have to manually acquire sync. If the wrong recording was started, the poor projectionist would, have, would be forced to stop the playback and restart the whole shebang correctly. Even something as simple as a few-frame hiccup in the playback could lead to horrible syncing issues causing another delay for filmgoers. If the system went smoothly, everything was magic, but it's when those mistakes popped up that really showed the weakness in the Vitaphone concept. On top of all that, the competing technology of sound on film was really making big strides. Vitaphone would soon be passed by in favor of Fox Movie Tone system in 1927, followed closely by the RCA Photophone soundtrack system. Vitaphone would become largely obsolete, used on occasion until 1940-ish, never reaching its highest heights again, a relic of old technology. But, like all silent film, not all was lost for the existence of Vitaphone true believers. Like many aspects of silent films, these Vitaphone productions were destined to be forgotten and destroyed. According to Richard Hildreth, there was hope and, more importantly, a group of people willing to save these pieces of history. Hildreth writes, The sound on disc system has left archivists and film preservationists with the difficult task of locating two separate forms of media for each film. The 1987 discovery by Robert Gitt of the UCLA Film and Television Archive of some 2,000 Vitaphone discs hidden at Warner Brothers Studios in Burbank was a monumental event in the restitution of the Vitaphone catalog. In response, the Vitaphone Project, a consortium of record collectors, preservationists, and expert enthusiasts founded in 1991,
has located some 3,000 additional discs and provided monetary aid in the restoration of 80 shorts and 12 features. Films and their discs are known to exist for as many as 70 shorts that are yet to be restored. On a more somber note, as we're talking about the post-movie life of Don Juan, we do have to talk about Willard Lewis again. In the film, he portrayed the loyal and hilarious Padrillo. But it's highly irregular for us to talk about an actor at this point in the show, but this sad turn of events for the film's comic reliefs warrants this mention. Willard Lewis was born on April 19, 1882 in San Francisco, California. He was a regular on stages and screens where he appeared in more than 80 films between 1911 and 1926. Like I said, he was born in San Francisco and caught the acting bug at the age of 20. He was a multifaceted star able to act in both dramatic and comedic roles. In fact, in 1926, he signed a multi-year contract with Warner Brothers. Now, if you're wondering why we only talked about his career up to 1926, well, that's where the tragedy and somberness comes in. Lewis died of typhoid fever and pneumonia on July 22, 1926 in Glendale, California at the age of 44, which is about a month before Don Juan was released. He was an incredible talent with a ton of potential, but it just wasn't meant to be. But his performance in Don Juan was fantastic and I am glad it exists for everyone to enjoy. So, before we dive into the movie reviews proper, let's see what folks thought of the preview shorts. It's not a proper Golden Silence film podcast without an official Morden Hall review. And this is a special time for a Hall review. In this instance, Morden Hall is actually the good cop with his review. Hall breaks down the pre-show thusly. A marvelous device known as the Vitaphone, which synchronizes sound with motion pictures, stirred a distinguished audience in Warner's theater to unusual enthusiasm at its initial presentation last Thursday evening. The natural reproduction of voices, the tonal qualities of musical instruments, and the timing of sound to the movements of the lips of singers and the actions of musicians was almost uncanny. This living sound invention, without a musician being present, also furnished the orchestral accompaniment to an ambitious photo play entitled Don Juan. So, we heard from some professional uh, reviewers, but for me, I really love this movie. I may be a bit biased, but I love great action-adventure films with some swashbuckling fights uh, liberally sprinkled throughout. Sometimes after watching a bunch of silent films, you can get stuck in a rut where it's all drama or comedy. You forget that action movies existed then and some of the fight choreography and stunts can leave you as breathless as any film made today. And for my first John Barrymore film, I can see why people were so into him. He was overflowing with charisma and charm. Provided he was healthy and clear of mind, he could do anything or any role and would be incredibly successful. He was something special, really, that was just flittered away needlessly. And Morton Hall agrees with my thoughts on Barrymore's performance when he writes, John Barrymore is as lithe as ever and his attire in many of the episodes of this photo play set on the slender form. Naturally, as the Spanish Don, he is heroic. No sword can ever defeat his, and no walls are sound enough to hold him in prison. That this Don Juan is handsome as he is fickle, until, of course, he experiences a heart thrust from Adriana della Varnese's soulful eyes. When the Don disarms his antagonist and that individual is at his mercy, the gallant Spaniard flings his swords aside and springs from the top of a flight of stairs onto his panting opponent, 
which performance was greeted with a hearty outburst of applause from the audience. Despite Hall's seemingly positivity uh, surrounding the film, like I said earlier, he was the good cop. There always has to be a good cop, bad cop. And the bad cop here is R.E. Sherwood of Life Magazine, who saw things a bit differently. In his review, Sherwood writes, Don Juan has been as liberally panned by the United Brotherhood of Movie Critics as any picture within my memory. Strain my ears as I might after its New York opening, I could hear no kind word for it from anyone. For all that, I confess that I enjoyed it. The backgrounds are awful, and the costumes grotesque in their inaccuracy. Mr. Barrymore himself is almost as bad at times as he was in The Sea Beast. The story is dragged out and frequently confused. But the fact remains that Don Juan engaged my humble interest and provided me with considerable entertainment. Much of this merit is traceable to good direction from Alan Crosland and to the effects of a generally good cast. There is one splendid performance by Nigel de Brulier and some effective work by Willard Lewis, Warner Oland, Philip DeLacy, and Myrna Loy. As the father of Don Juan, Mr. Barrymore is his old self. When he steps down a generation into the title role, he becomes the movie Barrymore with a few flashes of brilliance and a great many glints of supreme silliness. Now Sherwood ends his review in an odd fashion. It's something I've never really read before, um, but uh, I'll just tell it to you and we'll go from there. Sherwood writes, You may take or leave Don Juan as you yourself may choose. I hesitate to recommend either course. In reading Sherwood's write-up, I feel I must highlight a couple bits. First, I couldn't disagree more on his point of the costumes. Well, no one here at the podcast is a fashion historian and can say whether or not the garb was period accurate. I must say it was magnificent. Much of this film looks like no expense was spared, and that is most noticeable in the costuming. Every piece looked amazing and added to the film-watching experience. There is nothing grotesque about any of them, regardless of their historical inaccuracy. I can't be more agreeable to Sherwood when it comes to his positivity towards Myrna Loy's performance. I'll be honest, I knew nothing about Myrna Loy or even what she looked like. Watching this flick, her small but important role really stood out to me as someone I needed to keep my eye on. She was fantastic and never ceased to draw my attention when on screen. And it was only after the fact that I found out she was, in fact, Myrna Loy. I loved her in Don Juan and look forward to discovering more of her work. Overall, this was an incredibly fun experience and I cannot recommend it enough to everyone out there. So this was another fun silent movie day to be a part of. Well, not a sellout, it's always cool to be part of this great day and see the fans of silent cinema out in full force and supporting the films we love so much. The film was played with one of the opening night shorts played beforehand. Watching this. I could only imagine how mind-blowing it must have been to be sitting there seeing someone singing on screen for the first time back in 1926. Now, Rojas Cinema always makes the experience more special, and we love seeing Don Juan there. As always, I cannot sing their praises enough. If you find yourself in Pittsburgh with some free time and a hankering to see a cool movie, get yourselves to Rojas Cinemas. And if you want to find out more information about Silent Movie Day on Facebook, you can just search Silent Movie Day or stop at the website www.silentmovieday.org. There you will find an in-depth list of events that 
went down for the holiday and see cool pics of the theaters and the silent movie superfans who participated in all the celebrations. No matter where you are, the United States or the world, there were awesome events that celebrated our favorite photo plays. And we hope you enjoyed your silent movie day out there, everybody. So, as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite cinematic storytellers on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, the celebrity spectacle converge and where are they now? Your guide to paying your respects to the storytellers that have entertained us so much. Bess Meredith died on July 14th, 1969 at the age of 79. She was buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. Her final resting place can be found in the Rest Haven section Map number one, lot 286, single ground internment space five. As complex as the directions to her final resting place may be, her grave marker is equally very simple, yet classy. It reads, Bess Meredith, Helen Elizabeth McGlashan, 1890 to 1969. So, as this episode winds down, we want to thank you for sharing this Vita Fun adventure with us. It's always super cool to do a deep dive on a film that is so important to the history of cinema as a whole, and not just silent cinema. Did you enjoy our first quasi-sound adventure? Well, our first silent era quasi-sound adventure. We just did a, si a sound movie from 1979, but our first silent era quasi-sound adventure. What are some of your favorite John Barrymore films? What Myrna Loy flicks should we check out next? What cool and fun events did you participate in for Silent Movie Day? Let us know all of that and more at the various social media hangouts of the Golden Silent Films podcast. And on that note, if you have forgotten, we are on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what you thought about this episode. What movies past or present do you want us to dive into next? Our world of silence is constantly expanding and we need your input to plan out our future viewings as the season two finale soon approaches you can do all that at golden silence cast on instagram and at golden silence one on twitter and again if you like the show and you listen to it on apple Podcasts, spotify or any other outlet that allows subscriptions ratings reviews please do all three it helps us like crazy here and we love hearing all of your thoughts we super super appreciate all your awesome support and seeing how much you folks out there are listening only makes us want to make more, bigger, better episodes for all of you out there. And with all that being said, a big thank you to all you fine listeners for all of your fine listening. And do not forget, the silence are golden, and those talkies, they're just a fad. Hall leaves us with this final thought about Don Juan that I feel also applies to the recording of a Golden Silent Films podcast episode. And Morton Hall writes, In this film, there is the playing with feminine hearts, dazzling heroics, a brown-eyed maid, love, and an optimistic fade-out. <laughs>